Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Alison. Uh, this is a little bit one of our special sessions, which are geared to our fellows and which is a little bit more of a tutorial and of a career counseling session where basically we invite someone in uh, that has had a really wonderful career so far that has made really fantastic, important strides in their career. We ask them a few questions uh, and we hope uh, that that is uh, of value to many of you guys. Uh, today, I'm really, really happy to be joined by Tom Khalil. Tom is the Chief Innovation Officer at Schmidt Futures. In this role, he leads initiatives to harness technology for societal challenges, improve science policy, and identify and pursue 21st um, century moonshots. Um, and prior to that, uh, Tom served in a variety of very different roles, which is why I think why his uh, really background is really so, so interesting, including at the White House uh, for two different presidents, Obama and Clinton, where he helped to design and launch national science and technology initiatives. And the areas are rather broad, but many of them have a big foresight overlap. They include nanotechnology, the brain initiative, data science, materials by designs, robotics, commercial space, high-speed networks, access to capital for startups, high-skill immigration, STEM education, learning techno technology, startups, ecosystems, and the federal use of incentive prices. So we really have it all covered here. Really, really happy about that. Thank you so much, Um Tom, for joining. Um, I, I, I will start it off with a few questions and, sure. and we'll see where we go. But this is very much, I think, to just provide a little bit more of the younger generation with an idea of how they can make progress in the various fields that they're working on. So in a nutshell, maybe we'll start <laughs> with a really, really difficult question. Um, but what are you working on right now and how did you get there? Like if someone prompted you to give your life story in three minutes, what would that roughly look like? Yes. So I think my uh, career has largely been a first or second order uh, consequence of my decision uh, to volunteer on the 1988 uh, presidential campaign. Uh, so I worked for the 88 Democratic candidate for president uh, in something called the Issues Department. And uh, when presidential candidates say, if elected, I will do X, Y, and Z. Uh, our job was to come up with the X, Y, and Z. So because I did that, uh, I also got involved in uh, President Clinton's 92 campaign. Uh, and because I did that, uh, I worked for Clinton in the White House. Uh, and then as a result, was asked by uh, President Obama to lead the transition team for the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, and, uh, and then was asked by, uh, uh, President Obama's science advisor, John Holdren, uh, to, uh, serve as, as one of his deputies. Um, and then, uh, because I did that, because I worked for both President Clinton and Obama, I'd gotten to know Eric Schmidt actually back in the mid 1990s when I was working for President Clinton on an initiative to connect classrooms to the internet. Uh, back in 1996. Um, and uh, that's how I wound up uh, working with Eric on his um, philanthropy. Um, with One of Eric and Wendy Schmidt's philanthropic organizations is called Schmidt Features. So um, there was a fair amount of uh, path dependence uh, in my career in the sense that it sort of built on it, built on previous things that I'd done. And did you set out for that to be that way or did, you know, did you take one step and then the next one became a little bit more, uh, more, more apparent? Yeah, like I never really had a long-term plan. 
uh, it, it just wound up working out. And do you think that type of plan is still relevant for people right now that are seeking a, a similar career? Or do you think that like something in particular changed rather drastically where there's now very different steps that someone can, someone can maybe jump over or uh, that they have to do a loop around? Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think it is worth having a general direction. Uh, but I think that you have to be open to changes uh, and opportunities that may open up that you weren't planning. I mean, a lot of the things that I worked on were not things that I was like, oh, I'm going to do this, right? Um, you know, there's been a fair amount of serendipity in, involved in the process. And is there any area where, you know, or is there any point in that career path where you wish you had taken a different path or where sometimes you still back, still think back at least on like, oh, there was another opportunity and you're not quite sure um, what well, the I mean, there are definitely things that I know now uh, that I learn from, you know, trial and error and doing things that if I could go back in time and tell my, you know, 1993 self, you know, would, would definitely be. Uh, uh, worthwhile. Um, so, you know, for example, um, when I started working in government, I really thought of myself primarily as an individual contributor. Like, what can I do as an individual to advance President Clinton's science and technology agenda? Um, and, you know, what I discovered over time is that you can get far more done Uh, if what you're doing is recruiting other people, right? So when I came back into uh, the Obama administration, um, uh, I recruited at any one time 20 people uh, to uh, OSTP. They were each working on three things usually. So that, that meant I was able to work on 60 things at the same time, which obviously I couldn't do as an individual. So the leverage that you can get by <clears throat> identifying intrinsically motivated, hardworking entrepreneurial people um, serving as a uh, coach or uh, mentor, uh, putting them in the right environment, uh, being an advocate for their ideas, um, I think could have a really large impact. It is something that, that I think you know becomes easier for you to do um, as you progress in your career uh, because you actually have things to tell them, um, you know, as you're more advanced in your career. And when you recruit them, what do you look out for them? Like what types of trades uh, do you look out for them? Well, so I am certainly not someone who um, is going to micromanage someone. Um, so, um, I think it's very helpful if they have at least a hypothesis of what they want to accomplish that they are intrinsically motivated by. So, um, I'm not the type of person who is going to spoon feed someone, uh, what they should be working on a day, on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm happy to serve as their coach, mentor, and advocate. So if someone comes to me and says, um, for example, a member of my team uh, was uh, strongly motivated to 
reduce and eventually eliminate the waiting list for an organ transplant. So she was willing to run through walls in order to get that done. So I would help her, but I wouldn't have to say, oh, you know, here's like the, you know, this is what you should work on. This is the very next thing. She would let me know when she needed help. And so I've been more effective at at serving as a force multiplier for those types of people as opposed to the, the person who I would have to like have a check-in, you know, every other day and say, well, now that you've successfully completed task A, the next thing for you to do is task B. Yeah, well, uh, I guess that sometimes precludes, do you think that uh, has a strong uh, or like a, a soft bias at least to like a slightly folks that are not really more senior, but that are, you know, not like bleeding edge junior, or do you think that it's not at all correlated with their juniority? Um, I would, I, so what I'm talking about is me personally, right? So like, what are my strengths? And I, I, I don't think it, it, my strengths have been, um, uh, management as traditionally, uh, defined in, in the sense of someone who is going to do like a weekly one-on-one check-in with someone and be giving them very, you know, clear guidance about what they should do. But if someone says, this is what I'm trying to accomplish, then, um, uh, and this is what I, this is what I need help with. I tend to be better at supporting those types of people. How would one uh, best, you know, get your attention of a one to work for you? Like, what do you look out for? Because I, I know that there's always like a few things that people look out for in emails, you know, even in cold emails. Do, is there anything for you? Like, uh, do you ever, you know, like what, 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 what tickles your curiosity? Um, well, when, um, you know, when I get excited about the, the, like the person and the idea. Um, so, you know, um, if someone has an idea, even if it's not fully fleshed out, but um, they're able to articulate, here's where we are as of August of 2022. Um, this is where the direction that I think the world should be moving in over the short, medium, and long term. And this is where I think the potential leverage points are. Um, so to give you an example of a recent idea that I've uh, been excited about, an idea that Sam Rodriguez and Adam Marblestone had uh, is that there's a class of scientific and technical problems that is not a good fit for a startup because it's creating a public good or there's no path to profitability on a time frame that is um, uh, attractive to a venture capitalist, but it's also difficult to do in a university setting. And what the world needs is... Uh, time-bound um, uh, university-adjacent research nonprofits that have the unity of purpose associated with a well-run startup, but because they're philanthropically funded, have the ability to work on public goods. So I already knew Adam from work that I'd done on the Brain Initiative um, and knew that he was a polymath and was really good at the process of scientific road mapping. Um, And uh, so what was exciting to me is that he was, they, they were proposing a new modality for funding and organizing research. So it wasn't like, oh, there's this one project and then it'll either be successful or not. But more, it was a question uh, 
uh, that had the potential to be generative. Uh, and the reason was that this is not a question that the research community was asking themselves. Um, so they weren't saying, what would I do if I were the CEO of a $50 million research nonprofit? Because uh, their view was, well, even if I have a really good idea of that question, um, who's going to fund it? Um, and so it was the, Adam was asking the question, but because I was participating in the calls and I work for Eric Schmidt, it was credible that if they had a really good idea, that Schmidt Futurism might, was in a position to fund it. And so what we did was uh, we increased the expected return associated with, with answering a new question, which is, if, an, if FROs existed, is there an important bottleneck in the field of, in some subfield of science and technology that they could help address? Yeah, and, and address they did, right? Uh, I think they've been spinning out left and right. And um, yeah, it's really wonderful how many folks from, uh, you know, newly emerging and blossoming FROs I see at, at various San Francisco events. So it's it's been really interesting to see that watch from like the idea generation phase um, into a phase where it's now, you know, almost, um, yeah, almost like a normal three-letter term that people refer to when they talk about scientific innovation. It's been rather surprising, the, the speed at that, right? Yeah. No, I mean, and so um, I think my superpower is the ability to get excited about other people's ideas. So my view is that I don't have to be the author of the idea. Um, I have to believe that there's something constructive uh, that I can do uh, to be a force multiplier for that idea, that individual, that team, or, or that community. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good one. Um, okay, wonderful. Well, I know that the next questions will be kind of hard because you've been in so many fields. So maybe we just maybe you can take them just you know as you go, um, sure. and we can you know see if there's a few other fields that we still want to come back to. But um, if you could give kind of like a bird's eye view of a few of the fields that you think are relatively interesting right now to get in, so that an outsider, you know, who's been relatively inspired by this. I could actually uh, find their way into a field. Is there something like that um, for, you know, either of the initiatives that you led before or something like a meta field that you're excited about? Yeah. So what, why don't I use the, um, the effective altruism criteria of important, relatively neglected and tractable? How's that? Sounds um, great. So I think what, there is not enough people working on is the creation of a marketplace for outcomes. Um, and there are uh, four types of participants that need to be brought together. Um, and the first type is the entity that's willing to pay for the outcome. So uh, an example here is uh, Operation Warp Speed said to Pfizer and Moderna, If you develop a COVID vaccine, which gets an emergency use authorization from the FDA, then we will buy X hundred million doses. So that's one type of participant. The second is the teams that believe that they can achieve that goal. The third is the, the investors who are backing the teams. And the fourth is the 
economists and subject matter experts and, and lawyers who are designing the contracts. So the status quo is that right now the government um, has a very well-established process for making financial commitments that are contingent on failure. Those are loan guarantees. So if you, you were to look at the balance sheet of the federal government, you would see over a trillion dollars in loan guarantees. So that's the government saying, if Allison takes out a loan and goes bankrupt, then the U.S. government will assume Allison's debt obligation, um, as opposed to saying, um, if uh, if Allison does something uh, amazing to bring about existential hope, then we will provide an incentive prize for for Allison. Um, so this strikes me as uh, something that we should change. That is, we should make it uh, more commonplace that there are <clears throat> uh, individuals and organizations who have some problem that they want to see solved in the world who are able to come up with a performance-based uh, description of, uh, uh, of an unmet need and be willing to provide some um, uh, financial commitment that is contingent on success. And that could be an incentive prize, um, a advanced market commitment, which is a purchase order for a product that doesn't exist yet, a series of milestone payments for intermediate progress towards some goal. Um, and my view is we don't have enough people who know how to do that, uh, that is design uh, those mechanisms. So it's still a relatively rare and exotic thing as, a, as opposed to something that we do a lot more of it. Um, and so the whole energy and climate area is one of the areas we need to do this. And the reason is, is that um, in, in many instances, um, the climate solutions we need either don't exist or they're too expensive. Uh, so they have a green premium. So carbon neutral cement is more expensive than regular cement. Sustainable aviation fuel is more expensive than regular aviation fuel. Carbon neutral steel is more expensive than regular steel. Um, and so if you said like, well, how did we get solar and wind uh, down the learning curve? Um, it, it was policies like the German feed-in tariff uh, <laughs> that uh, even if you can say, well, it wasn't perfectly designed, um, and maybe Germany is a strange place in the world to do this because they get so little sunshine, uh, it's demand-pull policies like that that were as or more important than, than R&D, uh, because if we want to solve the climate problem, um, these technologies have to get economies of scale, and they have to take advantage of something called rights law, which is the reduction in cost that is associated with a doubling in, in volume, and that grows out of uh, you know learning by doing. And that's why solar has come down by you know 90%. So my view is there's not enough people who know how to do this and have picked a problem that they want to solve and to really apply these tools uh, to accelerate progress. Uh, and, um, and I would like to see more people doing that.
how would one go about setting up an incentive prize in another area than climate? Like, um, would it be you make a pretty good proposal with a few stakeholders involved, uh, according to your, what is it, magic telephone <laughs> um, prompt, and then uh, they, they write you? Or like, how would one even get started about it? Is there a working, um, you know, a working model like this already out there apart from climate? Um, yeah, so the uh, global health community uh, does this a fair amount. Um, and there's, you know, you can think of several different stages of this. There's, you know, identifying at a high level the problem that you want to solve, um, and then coming up with a performance-based description of an unmet need, which in the health community that they call a target product profile. So, uh, for example, UNICEF and Rice um, use the Delphi method um, to identify the performance attributes of low-cost, uh, rugged medical devices that would reduce newborn mortality in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and other developing countries. So UNICEF and RICE for 15 different types of medical devices and diagnostics uh, have uh, developed very clear outcome-based uh, definitions of the innovations that would address um, unmet needs and reduce newborn mortality in developing countries, which is the overall goal that they had. And they've done that for 15 different types of devices. Okay, cool. That's very concrete. I love it. Your examples are always like spot on. Um, I think uh, what I would really love to do, uh, I don't know if you're open to that, is but actually uh, dive deep a little bit into the different areas that you led in your life because sure. overlap really well with many of the things that our fellows work on. Mm -hmm. And we maybe we just slice them up one by one. Yeah. So one, obviously, you know, you had a really wonderful uh, and, and rather big role in um, nanotechnology and advancing nanotechnology quite early on. Um, can you speak a little bit uh, to that? And like, perhaps if you still have your fingers on, on the issue, which I think you do, um, how has how long have things in nanotech changed for someone new entering that field? Um, you know, are there any things you could recommend them, or any opportunities, or just you know problems you want to point them to? Like, yeah, perhaps your history of like you know how you advanced nanotech back then, and uh, and if there's anything that people now can can learn from that. Yeah. So. I have like to say that, like at a very high level of abstraction, um, and this is this is not necessarily something that I planned. So it was more something that I discovered. Um, so if you think about um, policy, um, a, the people who get involved in public policy uh, tend to have an economics or law background. They've worked on campaigns. They've worked on Capitol Hill. They've been at think tanks. Um, and they tend not to have a lot of interaction with people in the natural sciences and engineering. Um, and it's sort of like in high school, if you, uh, there were jocks, there were nerds, and uh, there were theater kids, and there were stoners. Um, and if you were to look at the social network of the high school, uh, there wouldn't be a whole lot of overlap between the jocks and the nerds, for example. Uh, and I think the same thing is true with respect to uh, policymakers and people in the natural sciences and engineering. 
And so as a result, um, there's a lot of um, mutual incomprehension uh, between those communities. Um, and people who study um, social networks, not in the sense of Facebook, but in the sense of the, you know, the, the network of relationships between people and organizations, call this a structural whole. Um, so lots of physicists and chemists and, uh, and material scientists in one quarter and people who, you know, are involved in uh, preparing the president's budget uh, and not, a, not in a lot of people who are members of, of both of those communities. So my value added was um, uh, I just had an interest in talking to those different communities and saying like, hey, what do you, what do you want to do next? Um, and so I, I can sort of, I understand both worlds, not because I have a like PhD in condensed matter physics, but just because I've spent enough time with different research communities to have, uh, a sense for what they're trying to do and why it's important. Um, and in the late 1990s, um, I came across, uh, uh, people at NSF and, uh, and NASA and DARPA and, and, and DOE and other agencies that were interested in this newly emerging field of, of nanoscale science and engineering. Um, and the idea was that if we can make uh, materials, structures, and devices that have these nanoscale properties, this is like adding another dimension to the periodic table of elements. Um, and this could be useful in, in all sorts of ways. So size-dependent properties, um, the convergence in link scales between inorganic nanostructures that we can make and the building blocks of life, like DNA and RNA and proteins. Um, other pro you know, sort of useful things that emerge at that level, like the incredible increase in surface area to volume. Um, and so I started asking them, hey, if like the uh, president decided to support this field, what are some things that might come out of it? And they said, well, we might be able to develop molecular electronics with a storage density of 10 to the 15 bits per cubic centimeter, create functionalized nano-engineered MRI contrast agents, and develop materials with a Young's modulus of this many gigapascals. And um, what I did was to turn that into storing the Library of Congress in a device the size of a sugar cube, making materials that are stronger than steel but a fraction of the weight, and detecting cancerous tumors before they're visible to the human eye. Um, and armed with those examples, I was able to convince ultimately the president that this was an area. Uh, that the federal government should increase. Um, and so uh, President Clinton uh, went to Caltech. Uh, he gave a speech in which he said he was going to double the federal funding in that area. And over time, that's resulted in $38 billion of investment in nanoscale science and engineering. Uh, so there's now a broad research community um, uh, you know, nanoscale materials, devices, and structures are, are being used 
for many, many different types of applications. Um, I was talking to uh, one MIT professor who runs the MIT Nano Initiative, and he said that like half of the you know early career faculty have some you know Nano component of the of their research program. Um, lots of other co- countries copied the United States. Um, and, uh, so, so that is one thing that I've been able to do is just serve as, try to identify where there are areas for, for where there needs to be more mutual, uh, comprehension between the, uh, a research community, like the sort of emerging research community in nanoscale science and engineering and, and policymakers. Because, you know, before I started talking about this, they didn't know what, you know, they didn't know what nanotechnology was. Do you think that, you know, as a kind of uh, advice bit, um, would this mean that scientists should learn to speak uh, DC language or or do they just need good translators? Um, you um, know, are there more people like what you did back then now or how can those people... Um, yeah, and not, not everyone needs to do this, but you know, it, I think it is useful to have at least some fraction of the, of the research community, um, uh, you know, have the ability to communicate with a broader audience. Okay, I'll take that. Uh, I think communication skills are definitely science communication skills in particular. Uh, you know, are, are really difficult to come by and yeah, uh, and quite useful. And then you know, the other thing is that. Um, what I really think makes a lot of sense is the, um, with respect to public service, is the tour of duty model. So I'm not saying everyone has to go to work for the government from, you know, age 25 to 65. But I think it's incredibly valuable for those people who uh, are willing to do a tour of duty because they'll come, you know, they'll, they'll go in, they might, for example, serve as a DARPA program manager for four years or serve at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And then, then when they come back, they're like, oh, you know, I now have this much deeper and richer understanding of the constraints and opportunities that policymakers have to try to move the needle. And so if I were to work with my community to bring some idea to, the, to their attention, I would have some idea of, of how to do it. And cognitive empathy for uh, the policymakers. I love that the cognitive empathy, but yeah, I think almost like little exchange stints where different folks visit each other and their respective domains would be nice. Um, okay, cool. Then for the brain initiative, I guess, similar question of like, you know, what got you into that? And, you know, for someone now, are there any, you know, bits that are different that are similar to back then? If someone, you know, really interested in pushing neuroscience and neurotech forward, um, what can they learn from your experience back with the brain initiative? Yeah, so um, this grew out of uh, conversations that I was having with the Kabli Foundation. Um, the Kabli Foundation has been a particularly strong supporter of three disciplines, astrophysics, neuroscience, and nanoscience. And one of the things that I've been interested in um, is the different Uh, the capacity of different fields uh, to do agenda setting. And in particular, 
um, the computer science research community has uh, something called the CCC, the Computing Community Consortium. And they have a cooperative agreement and funding with the National Science Foundation for the CS community to be continually updating um, the computer science uh, research agenda. And so I found when I was in the White House, I found that very useful because um, it allowed me to have this very high bandwidth two-way interaction in the following sense. One is they could give me an idea like, oh, we think robotics is near a tipping point um, because of this, th- these set of uh, you know, technological advances. And the next natural step would be for the U.S. government to do X. And then, so I worked on uh, the National Robotics Initiative, which grew out of a roadmap that the CCC had produced. And President Obama announced it in a speech that he gave at Carnegie Mellon University, in which he also announced uh, the Materials Genome Initiative, which is another effort that I worked on. Um, but also, I could go to them and say, hey, um, we just got an advisory committee report that 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 says that the future of computing is not just about faster and faster supercomputers. It's how do we deal, how do we make the transition to data intensive computing? So this was around 2010, 2011, when this idea of big data and things like Hadoop um, had sort of first uh, gotten on people's uh, radar screens. So I was able to go to them and say, we're likely to do something in this area. Uh, I want you to write a bunch of uh, you know white papers in that area, uh, and that'll inform what the federal government does in this area. So that was incredibly useful, and I was interested in um, whether other fields could develop a capability like that. And the Kavli Foundation, uh, and I also asked people um, in the same way that President Kennedy said, let's put astronauts on the moon by the end of the decade and have them safely return. What are the sort of similarly ambitious goals that we should be setting in the 21st century? Um, and the Copley Foundation organized a workshop that had half neuroscientists and half people in fields like nanoscience and synthetic biology. And the neuroscientists were complaining about how far they were uh, from having uh, something like the central dogma of molecular biology, which is how does information flow from DNA to RNA to proteins? And when they were asked, why do you think that is? Why don't you have something like that for neuroscience? They said, well, one reason is we're still limited by the tools that we have. We can uh, measure a very small number of neurons with high levels of temporal and spatial resolution, or we can take a fuzzy picture of your entire brain using something like fMRI, but we can't do anything in the middle by measuring the real-time interaction of large-scale neural circuits. And then the people who were there more from like the technology side were like, well, you know, why don't we try to do that, right? So could we actually develop the tools that would allow us to measure the real-time interaction of large-scale neural circuits? Um, And so they brought that idea back to me. And I said, look, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm going to have to talk to some neuroscientists to see you know, what the level of excitement is about this idea, but this would definitely clear my bar for important enough for the president 
uh, to get behind and, and, uh, and advance. And so um, I also knew that there were really only three people in the U.S. government that I need to convince um, the heads of NIH and NSF and DARPA, and I had worked closely with, with all three of them. And long story short, they all said yes. Uh, the president said yes. And then Congress did something that they almost never do. Usually, Congress just provides funding for something one year at a time. And in this particular instance, they were so excited about this idea that they provided 10 years of funding for the NIH component uh, of the BRAIN initiative. So the NIH component alone this year was at $900 million. Um, so it, it really is beginning to have an impact on the types of tools that will allow us to understand how the, you know how the brain works. And I suspect that it's going to be like an onion. You know, we're going to peel away one layer and discover that there's another layer, right? So I'm not saying like, oh, neuroscience is going to be a solved problem uh, in the next five years. But my hope is that these tools and the tools that one of our FROs, E11, um, uh, and, and similar types of efforts uh, will really make a difference in our understanding of questions like, how does the brain encode and process this information? Yeah. Um, for someone now going into neuroscience, would you still send them into producing better tooling? Or do you think that that's roughly covered and they should instead, you know, focus on a specific subset and just grab the tools that, uh, you know, the brain is just producing? Well, I, this piece of advice is more directed to to funders. So like an area that I think is uh, not adequately supported is creating a virtuous circle at the intersection of neuroscience and AI. Um, so the reason it's not is because the dominant funder of neuroscience in the U.S. government is the National Institutes on Health. And a, they do not have the goal of reverse engineering how Uh, human and animal brains are working and using that to improve the develop, to inspire the development of new AI, machine learning, you know, hardware, software, and algorithms. So I think that's an area that we're underinvesting in relative to its importance. And I think it, it, it starts with people. So we need uh, Cold Spring Harbor um, has a program that is trying to address that, but we should have programs lots of different places where someone who is has in uh, an expert in machine learning is sp spending time in a neuroscience lab and, and vice versa. I love that. Um, okay. So that would be not necessarily neuromorphic computing then, but like just generally even algorithms inspired by different types yeah. of brain architectures. Yeah. So like, you know, how is it that the brain operates with like 20 watts? Um, how is it that, You know, when we're training an algorithm, oftentimes we have to provide millions of examples. A child generally only burns themselves on a hot stove once. Okay, yeah. Well, there are exceptions. I definitely still do that sometimes. But you don't have to burn yourself a million times. Yeah, that's true. Fine. I'm not. I'm not quite that. Uh, I'm not quite there yet. Well, we just talked about tools, so I think that's a really great segue also to you know maybe discuss a little bit. Uh, data science or robotics, which, you know, ever you think that, you know, you have more to say right now, but, um, you know, I think 
those are definitely types of toolings that are yeah, especially becoming more interesting also now even for like computing and a variety of other bits. So, um, you know, if you have specific tips here or just, you know, advice for people that, you know, are roughly working along those areas where they can focus on or what your experience with these areas was that would be useful. Yeah. Um, so um, one way I think about this is, um, is there a question uh, where not enough people in the research community are thinking about the answer for some structural reason? Um, and, and there's, I, I have an intuition uh, that answers to those questions would, to that question would be really worthwhile. Um, and I'll give you one example of this, um, um, or more, depending on how much time you have, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you my like top priority. So, um, there is a researcher whose name is David Donahoe. Um, he wrote a piece, uh, called, uh, 50 years of data science. Um, and he noted that the areas where data science and machine learning has really made the most progress is where we have something called a common task framework. Uh, so what does that mean? So there's like a specific problem um, that the research community is trying to solve. Uh, there is a data set uh, that allows them to get better at solving that problem. There is an agreed upon benchmark and there is a leaderboard. So those, those are sort of the the building blocks of what um, he calls the common task framework. And he said, to first approximation, the areas where we've made progress are those areas where we have a common task framework in place. Um, and so when I read an article like that, my question is, uh, well, um, let's take the role that machine learning is playing in accelerating the pace of scientific discovery. Um, what is the area where we've made the most progress? Allison, any guesses? Um, I have good benchmarks. How, how about how about uh, AlphaFold two? DeepMind just said, "Here are two hundred million predictions of protein structures that we're going to put in the public domain." What allowed them to do that? Um, uh, a problem. Namely, how do you go from uh, amino acid sequence to three-dimensional structure? Um, a data set that is freely available called the Protein Data Bank, supported by government. Um, a benchmark for evaluating progress called CASP. And those sort of building blocks were foundational to DeepMind being able to get the uh, AlphaFold2 result. And David Baker's lab at the University of Washington to be able to do something similar to that. So um, why aren't, um, so other disciplines are just beginning to say, oh, maybe we should do something like this. Um, but um, one reason why they might not is again, um, it's a public good, so it's something that, that benefits an entire field. It doesn't disproportionately benefit any one company or any one academic lab, uh, number one. And number two, 
particularly if the data set would be expensive, they may not see a clear path to actually getting it funded. So that's another area where I have an intuition that there's a question like, what are the next 10 results that we could get that would have the impact of F full two if we had the right problem, data set, benchmark, leaderboard? So um, I think that's I think that's an interesting, uh, useful and potentially generative question. Yeah, we'll definitely share the um, article that you mentioned along uh, with the podcast. Um, maybe to change gear, like for one final one that you know obviously is of very big importance for Fawcett's community is space, <laughs> and one of the bits on your list is commercial uh, space, and so you know clearly it's gradually picking up again um you know and this time you know it's it's pretty private privately driven um and you know do you have any bits that you know you worked on that could be of use for someone now entering the field to kind of use as a north star or at least as some rails yeah so again this relates to what i was talking about on demand pull strategies so do you know how nasa and spacex collaborated on the falcon 9 Not exactly, no. Okay. So the, the U.S. had re retired the space shuttle uh, for safety concerns. Um, the um, So every time we wanted to send an astronaut to the space station, we had to pay the Russians $50 million dollars or more. So NASA said to SpaceX and some other companies as well, we want a rocket that will go up to the International Space Station and deliver and retrieve cargo, and ultimately astronauts. And not only will we buy rides uh, on uh, the rocket um, when you have it, but we will also provide you with milestone payments for intermediate progress towards that goal. And so NASA got access to a capability, the Falcon 9, for a tiny fraction of the cost that Uh, they have spent on a more traditional uh, program, the SLS. Uh, and there's a huge difference in the launch costs between where SpaceX wants to go, not only what they've already done, but where they want to go with Starship and the kind of more traditional uh, relationship that NASA has uh, with, with the SLS. So I think that was incredible success. And I think that we should do more of that. Um, so, for example, researchers at JPL and other places um, are working on this concept called the Sundiver. Um, and the idea is to have something that combines uh, a small sat and a solar sail that can engage in an orbit around the sun, coming close to the sun, and then use that Uh, to slingshot out into the solar system and to be able to explore parts of the solar system that traditionally would be very expensive and take a long time. Um, so that's an area where I'd love to see this NASA model that they used for the Falcon 9 uh, for this uh, Sundiver concept. Wow, how many years out do you think we are from a Sundiver? Um, I mean, depends when we want to get started. 
Yeah, I guess it's pretty it's pretty contingent. Um, okay, cool. I, I want to finish with like a few more, you know, soft and more general questions. But you know, there's a f obviously in your know, like pretty extensive CV. There's a few other bits as well that are more related to general STEM education or even learning technology. Um, you know, that would be more like a meta field of how you can you know accelerate um, you know beneficial progress uh, over generations really to come. Um, you know, to the extent that many people here you know, that maybe listen to it are currently in academia, like do you have anything to offer uh, to offer to them? About what? Just about from your experience with, you know, trying to improve STEM education. And, oh. you know, you, I mean, you improved a lot of learning technology, which I think was rather, um, you know, an international development effort as well, right? If I remember correctly. But, uh, you know, can people that currently are in, in, in the educational system learn anything yes. through like meta observation observations. Yeah. So what, one idea uh, that I've been excited about is the idea of empowering students to uh, major in a discipline, but minor in a problem. Um, so uh, we talk about how we want T-shaped people who have depth in one discipline uh, and enough breadth to be able to participate in cross-functional teams. And my friendly amendment to that idea is to make the top of the T a problem as opposed to another discipline. So as opposed to saying, um, I, uh, I majored in computer science, but I minored in economics, to say I majored in computer science, and the problem I'm interested in is mis- and disinformation, right? So the, what is the... Uh, curricular, co-curricular, and experiential learning opportunities that would position students who are graduating, either at the undergraduate or graduate level, to make some important contribution to some problem at home or abroad by virtue of the fact that they not only have uh, you know, deep expertise in, in one particular field, but they've looked at at least one problem from a systems perspective. Um, and therefore, um, you know, are deeply knowledgeable about that problem. So that that's something that I'd like to see more universities do. Wow. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, to the extent that there's now a few different alternative universities that are uh, propping up, we may actually see something like that. Um, okay, cool. Uh, two maybe final questions that I have that are a little bit more, um, you know, general, I think. Uh, one is... Um, for someone, you know, that really wants to make progress, there's always this, um, you know, def definite trade-off of, you know, private life versus a professional life. And, you know, I just wonder, do you have any, you know, kind of recommendations there, um, you know, <laughs> how you manage, how you manage the two? Do you manage them at all? I don't know, Tom. No. I, it's unclear that you have a private life to me just because how can one possibly do that much? But then, Often when I talk to people like you, they do manage just to have one. So I'm not sure. You probably have some witty thing to say on this too. I, I don't really have anything except to say that it's hard. Okay, it's hard. It's an unsolved problem still. So if anyone wants to get on that, then uh, why not let us know? Um, another one uh, is, you know, that we usually like to finish this off is, uh, what is a really good advice you got? Um, hmm. What is some really good advice that I got? Um, yeah, I I don't know. Like, if there's like one 
piece of advice that uh, that that stands out uh, f- for me. Um, I think it's I I and I think in part because it's so much more powerful than uh, when you learn something by yourself. Um, I I just think it tends to stick more uh, than if like someone tells you uh, something. Right. So for example, someone could say, well, you know, really the most important thing you can do is, you know, recruit and empower other people. And then you could be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, but if you do it and you see how powerful that is, that that is, I think that is much more likely to stick with you than if someone is just telling you, maybe like someone telling you kind of it's in the back of your mind. And then when, when you actually realize how powerful it is, that sort of reinforces that advice. But I think the things that have really stuck with me are, have been the ones where maybe I got that advice, but really what it took me was uh, some instructive success or, or failure that I was like, oh, yeah, that's why that's an important recommendation. Yeah, I think Naval Ravikant had this saying that uh, you should take all the advice that you can, uh, but they're mostly like, you know, kind of like platitudes. But then once you have experienced that, then that advice will stick much more. So it's almost like a thing where you can look backward of like, oh, that's what they meant, but not really looking forward to it very much. Uh, we have one question from uh, Matthias who joined us behind the scenes here. Uh, mm-hmm. So, if, And we still have four minutes, so maybe we'll get uh, oh. to... Uh, yeah, uh, sure, I guess, yeah. The, the great hawk uh, answer, love, love this. Um, so I guess the, the question that I sort of have is just... Um, I guess, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a mindset or a psychological question. Because, like, for example, when I look at a lot of these sort of projects and initiatives that you sort of mentioned, the way I see it, basically, like, what they are all sort of striving for is that they kind of, they need support from other people. They need all kinds of support, be it support from key decision makers, funders, just people that are going to work on these projects. And sort of starting out, at, like, at the beginning as perhaps somebody who just, I don't know, has a, a vague idea or just a sense that something could be different, it can be sort of rather mystifying both like what kind of support is out there and is just kind of readily available, what support might be necessary to make certain things happen, and like how to go about obtaining both. And I'm just curious as to like what do you see as like the right mindset to have given that to kind of retain sort of an, an agentic sense about kind of trying to make things happen? Yeah, so I think you know, the thing that has been useful for me, and I this I, I recognize that this is not terribly helpful for someone who's just starting out in their career, but is the accumulation of case studies uh, of both those things that I learned about, but also those things that I was personally involved in. Because once I ran a play and it worked, I was like, oh, I should do more of that, right? Um, so I think you can get some of that just by talking to people who've been successful and saying, like, what did you, what were all the steps? So actually, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do uh, at this point in my career is devoting a little bit more time to trying to capture and share what I've learned. Um, and I think part of the problem is a lot of it is um, very context specific. So the world of, People and organizations and uh, and p- policy, for example, is not like you know uh, Newtonian mechanics and the second law of thermodynamics or something like that, where you can write down these equations. Um, it's more the intellectually honest answer to all these questions 
is invariably some uh, some version of it depends. Uh, but I do think that there are some like heuristics uh, that you can try to communicate to people who that will be helpful to them. But I find that a lot of it, the a lot of the advice that I that I give that's most useful is if I understand the specific problem that someone is trying to uh, tackle, as opposed to just saying, "Well, in the abstract, how would you increase your 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 net beneficial impact in the world?" I think that's a difficult question to answer. But if someone said, um, "You know, it really bothers me that." Uh, you know, there's some set of actors that is uh, is not doing the thing that I think they should do. Um, I can give them some pointers about what is the homework uh, that I think they should do to increase their chances of, of being successful in, in trying to influence or shape that decision. I see nodding from Matthias. Wonderful. Well, thanks. I mean, you've definitely done uh, exactly what you said uh, that you're doing of like sharing a little bit of your knowledge. Thank you so, so much. Um, we'll be in touch when the video is ready uh, to be sent to our followers. And uh, we'll be trying to include many of the links that you already mentioned and dropped here in the chat. It was really, really wonderful to have you. Thank you so, so much. It was really, uh, uh, really nice for you to join. And I'm sure people will learn uh, a lot once this is published. Thank you, Tom. Have a wonderful every day. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>